The Wall Street Journal understands business, but it didn't always understand the business value of design. When Che Douglas, now Senior Vice President and Head of Design, came to the Journal, design was treated as a service organization and not a strategic pillar of a well-run business. We chat with Che about how he went about getting the right people involved to transform their design organization and spread design throughout the company using tools like Design Sprints and how he showed the value of design to the organization through a direct impact on their bottom line. Grab a copy of the journal and sit down for our chat with Che. Thanks for listening. Che Douglas is the SVP and head of design at the Wall Street Journal. He's helped transform the design team from a service organization to a strategic component of an embedded engineering product and design, EPD, structure. In 2018, the WSJ won a Webby Award for the best news app. And let's jump right into our conversation with Che Douglas from the Wall Street Journal. So, Che, you talked about using personas in your team to try to understand your customer base and design products that work really well for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes personas don't quite work out because when you talk to real people, you, you discover that, you know, personas are often about demographics and we're just trying to understand behaviors. And sometimes those behaviors are hard to pinpoint. I'm curious if you... Do you use other mechanisms like jobs to be done as a more stable way to understand your customer base? Yeah, I think um, I might just give you a couple of examples rather than talk about the tools straight away, if that's okay. Um, So I think to unpack it right now, if we look at our audience base, it's, it's super diverse. Like our site is, you know, up to 300 million page views in a month. That's just wsj.com. And so if if you're thinking about, trying to slice that out and break it up into segments. That's something we've always wanted to do. And we work with another team within our organization called Customer Intelligence. And they look at a lot of our customer data to figure out how they might segment things into certain groups. And I think from that, we'd kind of, a couple of years ago, boiled things down into six personas, things like Mobile Mover to CEO, et cetera. And I think while that was useful at the start of kind of kickstarting ideas and things like that what it wasn't really useful for was when we have these products that have been living and existing for a really long time like our site that might be decades old and with a huge audience base of very diverse needs and i think what we talked about before that before we hit record was um, ceo council which i was lucky enough to attend one of our conferences that we run and talk to some of the ceos there who we would definitely draw them up as a very specific persona and put it on the wall as a design team prior to me even going to that. And I think what that unlocked for me was that talking to a a range of them at this conference about their habits and behaviours and how they used our products in their daily lives and other news platforms in their daily lives to make decisions was really interesting. Every one of them was very different from one person who would only open their iPhone app if they received a notification from one of the news apps that they subscribe to, to other people that would start, you know, towards the back of a news print newspaper and read it backwards um, or rip out sections and fold it and do different things with it. So, and some people would just consume our content through newsletters and then clicking through from newsletters. So all of these people that we would typically as a design product engineering team would look at from a persona level and kind of categorize them had very different behaviors so what i think one of the things that we shifted at that 
point, it was more a different mindset than even a framework or a tool to thinking a lot more about habits and behaviors of people and then using some of the design principles that we use and methods that we use to improve our products for them in different ways. And I think what's then interesting at the same time is then how you layer in things like accessibility, you know, performance in terms of page load or performance in the app um, in terms of speed and into the designs and things that you're creating and you're making them for different types of people at different times and different use cases. And so it was very much kind of flipping everything from personas, which again, what I was going to say is that I think they're really great for startups and smaller companies where you're building a brand and a consumer base and you need a clear idea of kind of who you're going to be designing for. It's a great reminder. But I think we actually need to do the opposite. We need to think about everyone, every single person on this planet all of the time. And that might sound really overwhelming, but it's actually a really, really good way of looking at it, we've found, because I think you end up simplifying a lot of the things that you do because digital products can be extremely complex, in, particularly in news, I guess, speaking, <laughs> speaking from experience on that side. And I think that just allows you to actually make more rapid decisions rather than it gives you more constraints than less, and that allows you to simplify the products. And I think a lot of what we're looking at now is that we often are just constantly adding features to products because it's things that people are asking for or it's a great idea for the business strategy or the new strategy going forward. But we're actually thinking a lot about the idea of kind of design debt and experience rock, which other people have talked about in the industry recently too, and how you actually remove things to make the core of what you really offer, like and the value of that, really come to the surface and be really, really obvious as well. Yeah, let's talk more about the removal of things because that's, you know, I think designers get that um, inherently like in their physical space of like living simply or being very particular about the things that they choose to surround themselves with. Yeah. But when it comes to product design, um, there's so many other factors and so many stakeholders, as you said, a lot of different personas who express these what seem like really critical needs. We have to have this. I need this to, for it to be successful. And so there's this, uh, I don't know, perceived strong business case to not take things away. We over-index on preservation over cutting things. So I'm curious how you deal with the, the controversial conversations inside the company and also outside the company of, hey, you moved my cheese or you, you yeah. ate my cheese. <laughs> you ate it. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's there's lots to unpack with that. I think um, it's what's really, really interesting is the different stakeholders and the different languages they speak. Not obviously different different languages. I mean by like news speak because we have a newsroom um, and they talk a very different language to our marketing team or to other stake or the business side. So I think one is really like understanding where they're coming from so that you can talk to them better. There is no utopia. Like, it's hard. You have to debate this stuff constantly. There's no, you know, you can constantly spend all your time trying to refine processes and talk about the best way of doing things. But I think you really need a lot of messy conversations to build the trust that you need. And also, like, be really honest with not knowing a lot of the things that they're talking about so you can learn about their worlds as much as they need to learn about yours. So I think the things that I've seen successful are where we've built really strong relationships, particularly in the newsroom, 
um, because everything that we do is built off our core product, which is content. That's our number one asset. All the value that we extract comes from that. So we're really building on top of that. And so the conversation then, if you can change it in that way and you can connect with the newsroom in the way that you talk about content and what it means to readers and consumers, our members, then they start kind of understanding that and you can get to a point where you can say, well, that thing doesn't make sense really, does it? If that's the way they're using it and that's the feedback we're getting. And we've actually, you know, we've made three options, three prototypes, and we've put that in front of people and we've sent out some surveys and we've done some quantitative and qualitative research and it's come back and this one we can actually throw out. A lot of the time when you're validating things with people as well, you show them stuff, they like all of them. So, so then it comes back to the business and the newsroom. We have these two big stakeholders, I always talk about them like that, is the newsroom and the business side, which I think most companies just have the business. But the newsroom's just, you know, obviously creating the content. So it's our core stakeholder and that's, you know, has to be our biggest friend and the one that we understand the best to be able to kind of take that and turn it into something that makes sense in the real world for people. So as soon as you can kind of connect all those things together and you can talk about them, in different ways and the ways that make sense to those different stakeholders and it becomes easier it's never easy that's the thing i don't think design in the sense that we like to simplify and remove clutter and all of that kind of stuff is ever easy because so many people just go back to what they know which is like deadlines and adding features right we all know that and you can change a leader somewhere here or there and all those things come back again you have to go through it full circle so when we first spoke to you, uh, you mentioned that you helped bring about a pretty big change at the design team, um, which was originally treated more like a service organization. So maybe you could we could back up a little bit and you could tell us a story of what brought you to the Wall Street Journal and then some of the maybe some of the challenges that you faced in, in making that transformation in the design team. My journey really started with, you know, I'm Australian, you can probably hear my accent, but uh, I started in design, I studied communication design at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. And from there, I found it really hard to get a job out of university. I actually specialized in my final year in typography and photography. A lot of things that I was like, I felt were very foundational to the visual side of design, which I think is a really the thing that we always look at as being the obvious thing that people speak to when they talk about design. But I think you, you do need to be able to be really knowledgeable in that kind of area of the craft as well, even if that's how we get kind of perceived by the general public. And so I did all of that. Um, I eventually, after a year of kind of freelancing, really just being unemployed, I got a job at our Australian Football League. A friend of mine from university already had a job there, so he was lucky to invite me in. I ended up for three years working there doing a lot of layout in the print publishing area but I was much more interested in brand identities and designing logo types and identity systems at that time and then the digital side of that what all the touch points that came out of on the digital side so I helped win them some work and I really enjoyed doing that side of it which was kind of selling ideas and winning business and from there I decided to quit and start my own business, which was pretty crazy idea. Um, looking back, definitely crazy idea. I had some help from my parents early on because they'd run their own business. 
that's a whole other story but just that kind of motivated me to think that I, it was it was an option that was available otherwise I don't think I would have even thought about doing it and definitely the struggle was real for the first few years and then after about four or five was able to start picking and choosing clients a bit more not all the time because I needed to feed all of my staff and keep the, the lights on but we really focused on doing branding and digital work for anyone and everyone as long as they were good people and their motives and interests was real and they were inquisitive about what we could help them with and what we could offer we generally ended up working with them and after about four or five years I realized that there was a lot of upfront work that we could do and charge for before we actually did any tangible design work per se. And so we'd usually spend a week or two weeks, depending on how meaty the size of the business, number of stakeholders and stuff were. And we'd bring them into our studio and we'd, I guess you'd probably call it a design thinking workshop. Maybe we called them branding workshops at the time. And we'd just ask them a lot of big questions like, you know, why are you here? What are you doing? What do you do? Who's your customer base? What are the big problems you're trying to solve? What are some potential unmet needs out in the marketplace that you can leverage based on your core capabilities and your strengths? Um, and we'd do that from like a one-person band right up to companies with 10,000 people. So in any industry, um, and we really enjoyed that and it would give us a chance to reframe the work and the scope of work back to them um, so I really enjoy that side of design as well. It's like this unexpected thing. They're like, why is a designer talking to me about business? And then why are they like telling me that I don't need brochures and a website, that I actually need a loyalty program and a app and a bunch of, and a storefront redesign? I don't know. So, you know, it was really interesting to be able to change that conversation and learn about a ton of different industries and different businesses at different life cycles. And I think that gave me really good grounding in running my own business, which I ran for nine years before I moved over here. And the transition for me was a catalyst with my wife now was basically ready to leave Melbourne. She was a bit over it. We'd been there for a while and wanted to try a new city. And it, what ended up happening is a really close friend of mine who was at Google at the time got tapped on the shoulder for a really big job to be interim CTO at Dow Jones. Dow Jones is about 4,000 people. So it's a pretty serious job, about 200 to 300 software engineers to run all the technology for Dow Jones. He took the job. I then flew over not long after to help settle Emily into New York and he started putting me in touch with people. The first couple of people was a guy called Hamesh Patel and Edward Russell, who now run our innovation department for Dow Jones. And... So when I came over, I met with them, spent a lot of time just learning about them and the business and met some more people and they made an offer and you know I stayed an extra couple of weeks longer than I thought I would just to kind of really explore it and entertain it. And the offer was basically working with them, Ed, who was the chief product officer and Hamesh was the creative director at the time, across Dow Jones, all the brands. And so I got to do that and then not long after they formed the innovation department and I got offered to, to look after design with a move into the newsroom, the commercial side for Wall Street Journal. And that was basically kind of when I moved into the newsroom officially and took over the reins. And that's three and a half years ago now. And so that's the journey to that point since then. I think it's it's been a, a really interesting ride through 
not talking about the value of design, but I think showing it in different pockets, just really just trying to be a really good, strong internal, external voice for design and what it means. Be really patient with people to educate them on all the different ways that it can be really valuable to the newsroom and to the business. And, you know, I formed some really great relationships and made some really great friends here as a result of being on my feet a lot of the time, honestly, talking to people. And I've also been really lucky to hire a ton of talented people and convince them to come and work for a really, you know, big heralded institution like the Journal. And I think, you know, it might seem strange, but like actually hiring people into a brand like Dow Jones and Wall Street Journal is hard because you've got players like the New York Times and things where their design's kind of part of their DNA the Guardian, etc. But then out of the media industry, you've got all these big tech companies, you know, really just hiring all the, you know, the best people. So I had to kind of really create a new network in New York and, and outside of um, America as well and pull in some, some good folks to do that. So that's, that's kind of where we are today. Let's talk a little bit more about building relationships. You talked about, you know, in running your business for nine years, seeing companies in a lot of different stages. We've actually been doing a lot of research on this particular topic, um, seeing how design as a function matures inside of a company. Yeah. And, and we'd love to talk more about that transformation of that process in Wall, the, the Wall Street Journal. But one of the things that we found in our research is that the developing the relationships between the different groups, the different factions, in your case, you've got business stakeholders, you've got the people in the newsroom who have strong perspective and on the, the stories that are being delivered. And, you know, to use your, your framework you were talking about with your clients when you're running your business, changing the conversation of, you know, you think you need brochures, but you actually need all of these things. How have you gone about building those relationships inside of the organization? If you could maybe share some stories of where things don't go so well and how does that affect the work that you do? Yeah. And in places where it does go well, how do you, how does that empower you to make better work? Mm -hmm. I'd start with where it doesn't go so well, because I think being someone that's super passionate about the power of design for businesses and for all types of companies, um, I think you can wear that on your sleeve. And I've been really guilty of that in the past where I'm defending my team's work, you know, and there's been cases where I think that's, really someone's focused on the fact that you're being defensive in a presentation than the fact that you may have needed to just close your laptop and have a conversation. And I've definitely made that mistake numerous times. And I think when you realize that you're the one that's able to create things in a business, you know, the software engineers are really the others who can write code and and build things that, it's really important to bring others into that conversation. And it's not just early, it's just allowing them to ask questions. As soon as you're protective of anything, I think the whole thing unravels. And I've just seen that so many times. I think it takes me back to design school where it's it should be built into every program and it usually is, but critiques are like such a good way of building up thick skin for environments like this where you can get torn to shreds because you're creating, it's personal. And we talk about that a lot as designers, but I don't think we're honest about it enough about how important 
dealing with it is in in different situations um, where you you're really putting everything you feel like on the line. And I think even when I was running my business, sometimes we'd just take the kind of Paul Rand approach where you just present one idea and be like, pay me for it. And that would backfire too. People would like, I've had people not pay me and they still haven't. <laughs> so if you're listening, <laughs> I'm going to keep sending that invoice. But um, no, I think it's it's just one of those things that I think it's, it's a really like building up the ability to have real conversations with people and understand that they don't. And this is what designers talk about a lot is empathy. But like, not like you have to think about it from their point of view. Like when you're talking to certain people, change tact if you need to. If the room changes, if the dynamic changes, don't make the aim of the presentation. There's something I've talked a lot about with my, my boss at the moment is let's not make the aim of the meeting to get through the deck that we're presenting Let's just, let's talk about another aim. And if the aim is to win them over or to get feedback, because a lot of the times that these people that you are being defensive around, and I found this a lot too, if you can get past the defensiveness, some of the things they're saying really make a lot of sense. And if you take that on board, it's up to you as well. That's the other thing that people don't say a lot is I think people always feel like they have to take feedback and do something with it and teams feel like that that's a thing, that's an action item now. But I think just giving them the forum to give feedback and hear them out and so often be all you need to do. And that's just really basic behavioral psychology, but it's really true. Like over and over and over again, even those ideas and things that people bring to the table can be really, really useful. And sometimes you're purpose as a leader is to help even again in a different way reframe what that senior stakeholder has said back to the team in a positive light as something that actually makes a lot of sense and not that it's this senior stakeholder and that they get the senior stakeholder right to change something because they said so but because it actually makes sense and through that I think you build up enough trust and solid relationships that when you do want to have a really hard debate about something, not even push back. I think that's a strong way of saying it, but just have a good debate. You become an advisor and that changes the relationship hugely because then they trust you to advise them and give them counsel versus you're really a service. And I think a lot of those things take time. And my predecessor, Hamesh, was really good at that because he knew really deeply, he came from a news background and knew really deeply about things. And so could have really good arguments with people about it. And I think we've been able to kind of scale that a lot more and embed people around the business in that way too, that it takes time. And I think patience is another piece of it. But thinking about what you're presenting and what the aim of what you're presenting is and the purpose is actually really, really important. And you shouldn't just kind of rush in because you think everything's sewn up and it's brilliant. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. 
Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. So earlier you, you spoke about not really talking about the value of design, but rather showing the value of design. And so yeah. curious about that, but also... You know, some of the companies that we've been talking to in our research that are a little higher on the maturity scale, it's not just, you know, usability or customer satisfaction that show the power of design, but yeah. it extends to things like revenue and employee efficiency. Could, could you also talk about some key areas where design has really demonstrated uh, impact to the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one that's fairly recent is our iPhone app redesign. We started that in, I think, March last year so 2017 and setting it up was actually quite a process and just getting the right roles and responsibilities and everything outlined because it's such a high profile thing for us um it's really one of our really core touch points with people and for loyal members so and so we we structured in a way that was set up where we had epics which is pretty standard kind of agile process but what we hadn't done in the past is build in usability studies, field research, testing, etc., into those epics and give us enough time to iterate on that and keep kind of building it in as we went, knowing that we were going to do a, a really significant release because it hadn't been changed in such a long time. And so that process in itself connected us really closely with our members and our customers. So that was a big change. And through the power of co-creating with them, and our new stakeholders were actually doing two things. One, we're able to 100% redesign the user experience for the app. But we're also able to partner with a newsroom to build a new mobile editorial team that was curating content for the iPhone for the first time, which they'd never done before. It was this, you know, whatever was curated for the wsta.com desktop homepage would just be passed down to the app in terms of hierarchy and content sets and curation. So we looked at all of that and we thought about it 
purely from an iPhone user experience point of view, content and design. And that was a huge change because we were changing workflows as well as, you know, that's that's big when you've got a, a large amount of journalists around the world. Um, so co- the coordination around that effort was huge. And we brought the customers into the process. We're able to do a lot of things that we talked a lot about and been chipping away at behind the scenes too from a design perspective, which was bringing in our newspaper typefaces, which we'd had recut for digital. And that was a brilliant thing to partner with Tobias Vera Jones and Type Network as well on doing that because one of the first tests that we did when we had visual designs and prototypes, we got feedback from the customers saying, this really feels like the journal. And, you know, I think the hairs on you know, the back of your neck kind of stop a little bit. We're like, this is the first time I think we've heard that in some user testing. And I think a lot of the struggles with big news organizations at the moment is around trust with readers and knowing where you are with, you know, all the different platforms and experiences and aggregators of news content that exist. So that felt like a really good start. And we could kind of build on top of that over time. And then Eventually, when we released to the public, we'd had so much feedback. There was really only majoritively, you know, good good feedback coming in. And the App Store rating and reviews went from 2.3 stars to 4.5. Time spent in the main news feed went from 30 seconds to over two minutes. I mean, that's that was our the metric we were trying to hit. Like we had a objective and key result, and the key result was around time spent not click-throughs to article from the main news feed so we you know we factored that up a lot and so that was huge we also introduced the ability to save up like really basic kind of functions that we knew people really wanted and brought them closer in terms of hierarchy and reduced friction and so that was really great and then i think you know, winning the Webby Award for Best News app was like another kind of reassuring affirmation as well around all of that. And I think that was a really big step in helping the newsroom and the business kind of embrace a lot of what we did and showed value in a slightly different way to pure revenue because there's obviously revenue when time spent in the apps going up. There's advertising revenue and memberships and things like that attached to it. So they were that was tangible. The other big one that I think was really interesting was we had when I this is not long after I started and took over the, the the role of heading up design was that our CEO actually kind of gave us a project which was to really look at our uh, subscription flow and I mean when you're in a business and you're already a subscriber to the journal you're probably not looking at it very much but it was great to hear that he was like was it getting feedback from somewhere and taking that on board and it was really really hard to subscribe on a mobile phone like. If, if I gave you that experience now, <laughs> you probably struggle to do it in like five or six minutes and maybe not be able to do it at all. So I think that was for us, a, like felt like design challenge, this will be a no-brainer. This will be super easy. So we redesigned everything. We removed 50% of the form fields. We made it super mobile friendly with proper validation if you were typing in an email address, it would bring up the, the keyboard with the at symbol to like taking a photo of your credit card and pre-populating content to looking up Google Maps and making sure that you could get the right address in. But then what we found was, and we were lucky because we had our CEO sponsoring this, um, we were meeting with him, 
I think maybe even twice a week at the time. He was like, I want to do this quickly. Let's just do it. And if anyone gets in your way, just bring them in here <laughs> when you're presenting. And so we ended up having to do that over and over again because there's things that as we were going through it, it was like, well, we need this form field for this compliance, for this for addresses, we don't ship to Hawaii, so we can't do that. And we're like, but we're not sending print. We're just, and they're like, but you can, you can buy print. And then you name it, like a million edge cases came out of the woodworks. And we had to deal with every single one and try and nip it every single time. And that really, that process really kind of probably took us three months. And we launched a new one. And on a mature business, think about the journal at that point, it went from just over kind of 2% conversion to over 22%. So again, that was like proving to the business that we could really remove friction and have a direct impact on revenue, instant impact. So month to month, they could look at the dollars coming in from subscriptions and know that that experience that we'd built for subscribing on a mobile phone to the journal was you know, a huge improvement. And that was easy in terms of speaking to the business. That was like speaking their language but it was also, it felt like the start of it was really easy. And then the hard part was like kind of, you know, dealing with all of these crazy edge cases and the people connected to them that, you know, would fight for them dearly because, you know, that was, that was their job. Itche, if you were to estimate how much time and how the quality of the product was impacted by executive sponsorship, um, how much, how, what was saved by having executive sponsorship there? I think doing it at all, to be honest, I don't think. So it's like a, it's a, it's a one or zero. It's just a total binary. At that time. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think like it would have been death by a thousand paper cuts to anyone who tried to do that, even if they could make sense of it. I think they would have always had to go right up to the top and, if you're going to do that every single time someone came out and said, you can't do this for these reasons. And they're all good reasons. I had nothing against the reasons, but there were creative solutions to each one. But you had to work through it. But we needed the support for those people to open the door to even be willing to have a conversation about working through it. And I think just going back to the sheer number of conversations with different people about doing these things and making those changes... Yeah, I, I probably is a zero and one proposition, honestly. Yeah. Let's talk let's talk about, you know, that's that's awesome that you had the executive sponsorship and it worked out and you were able to create value <laughs> for the business. Not not everybody, you know, not all companies have that. And we don't um, have that for every project either, might I add. Sure. Like I think yeah. like that's you know, that's a that's a rare one off and I don't think that's something you want. You don't want to do it. And I think uh, while it worked for that and was great. I think we all learn a lot about it. I think definitely kind of not something you'd want to do every time. Let's talk about um, just the bigger picture because uh, as I was saying, you, you don't always have the executive, you know, helping you out on things because a big part of it, like coming into Wall Street Journal, I don't know what the current culture was as you were coming in. It sounds like you had a predecessor, who, you know, where design was really important. It's certainly, you know, see that in, in the brand and so forth. But I know that you've brought in Jake Knapp um, to, to bring in the sprint process to the team. And also you personally have advocated quite a bit for design thinking and bringing that in. 
these are really tools, especially design thinking. Um, John Maida, when we talked to him, he described this as a, a bridging technology, thinking of it not as really a design process, but a bridging technology to the rest of the organization to help them you know, understand design, build those partnerships as we were discussing earlier. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Like when you came in, yeah. was it a transformation? If so, yeah. like how does design thinking, design sprints, how does that empower yeah. that? No, I think um, it's a really good question. I think um, one of the things that I've, I try to free myself up a lot of the time to work on things like that. So something like bringing Jake Nath in probably took nine months to coordinate and again, kind of sponsor and organize like what we did. We actually had three day thing where he gave a talk to a select group of 40 people that we kind of opened up through a an email that we sent out to the entire company across our giants to participate and put in a reason why you'd want to participate. And um, so he gave a talk at the start of the day for that. So that was opened up to the entire company. And then the 40 participants got training for a whole day in how to facilitate design sprints. That's been really successful. Unfortunately, I don't have the number off the top of my head with how many we've run since with Jake's methodology. But it's, it's significant. I mean, when you think that it was zero before, obviously, <laughs> with Jake's methodology necessarily. So this was like a, it was big. And then he also, for two areas, the commercial side of the business and the newsroom, ran two short sprints and facilitated them with us for a group of seven on each side for two ideas to kickstart. So that was fantastic. But I think it was also like the ability that, I, like I said before, try to do is free up my kind of time to be able to think about things like that and have the energy to see them through. And you touched on another one. You just talked about John Mader. I was lucky enough to have breakfast with him the other day. We've been trying to connect for a while. He had a really interesting point. I don't know if he mentioned it to you, but the idea of talkers and makers um, and bridging the gap. And I loved his analogy around that and that why he did his MBA. It's kind of that point of why I've you know, spent so much time listening to people in the newsroom. It's just really learning how to speak their language um, so you can connect with them on a different level. And I think a lot of design thinking is actually about that. It's, it's really learning about other people's worlds and understanding them really, really deeply so that when you go and create some value or prototype or thing on top of the asset, if it's content in our case, we're creating prototypes on top of it, then you're kind of iterating and improving and, and then you're in that cycle. But, you know, how do you extract the value from it? Um, and I think you need to go pretty deep before you can figure out how to do that. And you need to reframe and unpack and reframe and unpack. And if you don't kind of understand their world and speak their language, it's, it's quite tricky to do that. And if you're not interested in it, it's also hard. I think you have to be inquisitive, honestly. Like, you know, I, I'm happy to spend a day in a room talking to pretty much anyone about any topic. I just really enjoyed learning. And I think that's a really kind of key skill for designers to have, is to have that inquisitive nature and willingness to learn. And I think that also, back to the earlier point, allows you to deal with critique and things a lot better because you're just genuinely interested in why someone would say that's a bad idea or something they don't like. There's a couple of other things. So, yeah, like tools and frameworks. So design thinking, design sprints. I think the other really big thing that we've um, focused on in the last couple of years, and Bonnie on my team, there's actually a good article on the Envision blog about it, but an interview with her is just is really focusing on what the idea of 
bring users in means and how to bring customers and members closer to us when we're building products and get their feedback early and often. And that didn't exist here. So I think they're things that have really just, they changed the conversation a lot. It, it feels repetitive to say, but like, have we, let's user test this, let's do some usability studies, let's take this out to the real world, let's send out a survey. But that has just like getting the tools to be able to do that, getting the right people that know how to do it, all of that takes time as well. And if you're structured in a certain way, then you typically look at a headcount in a certain way. And I like to be creative about all of those things. So I think I probably typically would have just kept hiring product designers and people, but we've started to kind of open the team up to different people that are want to coach others in human-centered design and design thinking, people that are teachers at schools for design thinking so that they can actually train other areas of the business on it and we can start kind of leading that charge and really being, I guess, a, a strong voice in the business for it and ensuring that we have the right training programs around it, building that into our onboarding and recruiting and everything else. It takes time and you need relationships in all of those departments and areas of the business as well. It's wonderful. So one last question so we can get you out of here on time. And you probably see a lot of content come through in your current role, but are there any uh, books or articles or even authors that, that have stuck out to you and been helpful in your career? Can I flip it and say that, and this is a little bit embarrassing to say, but I don't read a lot of books and it's, it's actually something that I've always personally put a strike against me that I do to myself and I, and I, I do want to do more, a lot more of it. So I'd kind of flip it right now and say that I think where I find my inspiration at the moment is reaching out to people and connecting with them and it's, it's been amazing the last four years to be honest like the people that i've been able to meet in this job including people like yourselves it's just the power of actually connecting and saying hey if you want to come and see the wall street journal newsroom or meet the team you know i've been a big fan of yours would love to chat everyone seems to respond um which has just blown my mind like i did a trip out to san francisco when i was really thinking deeply about how i wanted to organize the team and was lucky enough to meet with, you know, Alex from Head of Design at Airbnb and people from Facebook and Google and IDEO. Everyone was just so welcoming. I mean, sorry it's not an article or a book, but it's one thing that's actually got me a long way in my career because just listening to people it's just, and the stories they have to tell, particularly designers, the ones that have been really successful in their careers seem to just be incredible storytellers and I think I've been really lucky to just tap into that sheer by having the 130-year-old brand of the journal behind me and a, and a leadership role here too in design. It's just opened doors like really easily. I've been lucky to meet you know people like John Mater, Michael Beirut, obviously Jake Knapp, and, and just like so many other folks and you know folks from IDEO too. So it, yeah, it's it, the, the, the things that I've learned through that. It's just been so inspiring just to walk away from conversations with people like that, with huge minds that are inquisitive too. Wonderful. Well, that's a great place to wrap. And Che, Che Douglas, thanks so much for being on the Design Better podcast.